sometimes it's no, you know, so we won't be here for five or six hours. Mike's not going to be going through all the way to 52. It's going to go 38 to 41. And I just want to say something. I look around and I, I, I see all familiar faces and that, but I just want to say, you know, we need to understand when we say, like, you know, thank the Lord for the Word of God, right? That even the church history that we have that we're looking through in that, right, was specifically given to Luke. For that's what he's right down. Because think that there's a reason for everything he's revealed to us in his teaching, in his doctrine, even in history, for things he wants to know to reveal to us. Amen. So, with that, let us read Acts 13, beginning in verse 38. <clears throat> Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Let me add amen. <laughs> amen. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye cannot be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wander and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe though a man declare it unto you. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, again we come unto you to acknowledge you and as the one true living God, as the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Oh, with, with for our, your praise in our mouths, and Father, also thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts. That even though you are all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise, yet you are gracious, full of loving-kindness and merciful. And you chose us that know you today as your children and adopted us. And you've revealed yourself to us, revealed everything of yourself and about yourself to us that you wanted us to know in your word. And you've given us your Holy Spirit that through those two things you build us up you protect us. You cause us to grow in the faith, Lord. And we thank you so much for that. Father, now we ask, be, be with Mike now as he preaches and expounds upon your word, Lord. That it be correct. That you, the name, in the name of your Son, and your gospel be exalted, Lord. Lord, let you be glorified amongst your people this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Yes, I got a little overzealous with my email this week, uh, looking at the the verses, Lord willing. Um, yeah, we would be here for eight or nine hours, amen, if uh, we, we did all of that. So what a privilege God has given us again this morning to gather together to, uh, as we say every week, to have our Bibles in our hands and uh, to get uh, the glorious instruction of God as the Spirit of God certainly sinks it deep down into our ears. And of course, it's been a couple weeks and uh, I was so I was so overjoyed last week uh, as we were meeting uh, down at the Capitol grounds there. And uh, what a unique setting that was. Amen. And uh, it would be, uh, I think, behoove us to do some more of that. Amen. To to get outside of the building to uh, to invite other brothers to come and sisters to come and just just to hear some men preach, Dean and Howard and some of the some of the men to preach. And so 
Lord willing, maybe uh, this summer, a little further down the road, we will be able to do that again. Well, since it has been just a couple of weeks since we've been in this text, you remember that the last time we were gathered together here in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul really had just reached the heart, if you will, of his Holy Ghost-led sermon. He has come to the cornerstone of our Christian faith. And again, you see this over and over again. The plain and clear declaration of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is what he, his brethren, is preaching now to many of them that are there in the synagogue. Most of them are Jews, but we saw, didn't we, that there were some Gentile believers who were there uh, who Paul is preaching to. In fact, I like what Charles Spurgeon once said concerning the gospel. He said, let us preach the doctrines that grow out of these facts. Now, it's interesting because these are facts. And as, as, as uh, Spurgeon says here, facts are stubborn things. Amen. And so he says here, let us uh, preach the doctrines that grow out of these facts. For facts are indeed stubborn things. And if they are backed by the Spirit of God, and brother, this is really what we pray, don't we? We pray that the Spirit of God, you can preach all day long, but if the Spirit of God is not there moving this, you know, the, the Word of God into the hearts of the people, it is a very difficult thing, amen? There is really no hope. But we, we see that they are stubborn things. As they are backed by the Spirit of God, they will carry all before them. He says, exhortation is well enough, and we need some exhortation sometimes, don't we, in this place. But you must have not only have powder in your gun, but there must be some shot. And so uh, as we look here this, this morning, brethren, at this particular text, there's a lot of powder, and brethren, there's a lot of shot. There's some power there as we are going to look at this portion of Scripture. The apostle does indeed have solid facts here. They are undisputable which he drives home to the heart and conscience of his hearers. And ultimately, brethren, this is what we pray the Spirit of God to do. He does not forget, nor does he ever forget when he's preaching. He just does not do it in his preaching that the weight and forge of a sermon lies in the distinct truths, the distinct truths that from God that it teaches. And so what is the text teaching us? Amen. And that's part of it. And Part of my, my uh, I don't want to call it a downfall, but my brain leans towards theology. So Paul is definitely going to wade deep down this morning into the pool of theology. And uh, your theology, of course, is foundational to it all. Look at verse 30. You see, again, and we're just going to kind of back up there again. He's reached the climax, if you will, the cornerstone of his sermon. And look at verse number 30 as he, <laughs> as he speaks there concerning the resurrection. But God raised him from the dead. Look at verse 33 and 34. Again, this is something that he continues to re refer them back to. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Look at verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, again, there's Paul's reference again to the resurrection, because everything he says now forward in verses 38... 39, 40, and 41, he ties directly back to this truth. It's an amazing thing. All of that he's going to say, think of this, the forgiveness of our sins, our justification is based upon what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what it's based upon. And so the next two theology, the doctrines he's going to get into is forgiveness of sins and justification. And so he references the resurrection again. Christ is not laying in a grave, brother. He's not laying there dead as we preached a few uh, years ago. Amen. The idea that when you go to Muhammad's grave and you, you yell, 
you know, the old, the roll call, right? Are you here? He says he's here. You go to Christ's grave as the angel said. He's not here. He's risen indeed. And so this, again, is the foundation that we see. Look at verse 37. Again, he references that. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And so as we said earlier, God's resurrection truth, this which he is speaking, which Paul is preaching here in this narrative, as Luke is recording it by the inspiration of God, it is the basis for our text. Again, as I said, as the Holy Ghost leads Paul to fasten. He fastens their eternal hope, and brethren, he fastens our eternal hope to that truth. There's no question about it. He's already told them, brethren, that their Jewish history resolves, if you will, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God's promise of their Messiah and ours resolves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now their darkest problem is he addresses it with them. Their sin problem, Paul is going to teach and preach to us this morning, is put right. It's put right, if you will, and settled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And ultimately this morning, this is what we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ preach. I know that sometimes it's like, well, Pastor Mike, you repeat yourself a lot. Yeah, because the Bible repeats itself a lot on these doctrines. Remember Paul? Paul repeated himself, and he would write things to the brother, and he'd say, it is no trouble for me to write again for you. In fact, it is safe. It is good for you, and it is good for me to hear these glorious truths over and over again. Look at verse number 38 there. As Paul begins, our deep pool, if you will, of theology. Again, he ties it right back to the death, burial, and resurrection. It's directly tied the forgiveness of our sins, as we're going to see here. Look at verse number 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, well, who's the man? He's been preaching who? The Lord Jesus Christ, directly back to him. It's this man that I've been preaching unto you. Your Savior, your Messiah, though that who God promised to bring, he's the one who raised up from the dead, him, that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. He says there, uh, he says, uh, that through, his, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of your sins. Brethren, there is nothing more glorious that one can hear. There isn't anything more glorious that one could hear from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Word of God this morning, that your sins have been forgiven. It is a most glorious thing. Paul, the Holy Ghost here leads Paul with laser-like precision. This is what he does to point their religious affections again to this man, the Lord Jesus, who is, brethren, God's one and only efficacious agent for their sin problem. He is your and my one and only efficacious agent for our sin problem. And this is what he's doing. Again, he's pointing into there. Now, it's interesting, this word forgiveness. It is an action by God that causes separation. It literally means to send away. It means to put apart. It means to pardon, to remit. And immediately, again, he's preaching mainly to Jews right now. There's some Gentiles mixed in there, but he's preaching to that. And when he uses this word, these Jewish he hearers would have immediately went to the book of Leviticus. And I want us to turn there this morning. This idea of being sent away. The idea of God's action separating one's sin from them. And immediately they would have went to Leviticus 16. So let's just turn there. I want you to see this. The scapegoat. Many of us, I'm sure, are very familiar with this portion of scripture. But I want you to see this idea of forgiveness. This idea of, you know, you think you read in in scripture and the Psalms and stuff. Uh, he has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. But the idea here is the moving away, the putting away, the sending away of their sin. And it's found only in this man. 
your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God raised up from the dead. He's the one. He is the man. Look there, if you would, at Leviticus chapter 16. I want you to notice verse number 8. And again, this is Old Testament. This again is a typing, a picture of exactly what the Jewish hearers would have put in their minds. This was done yearly. This was something that they were called together to do. And God, again, is reminding them over and over again. And this is really the distinguishing difference is this. Is that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was rolled ahead. It was remitted, if you will. It was rolled ahead until the man that he's talking to them about came and died on the cross. Was buried in the grave and rose from the dead. Then sins were completely blotted out and completely remitted, completely put away. So this is the picture that they would have seen in their minds. as he's, Look at verse number 8. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, and one for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. It reminds me, I shouldn't tell this, but it reminds me of a, a joke I heard one time, you know, with Baptists. Sometimes they have a little problem, you know, getting their hands in their pocket and giving, giving the church. So the one man, he, told, he comes home and he tells him, he comes in from the barn, he goes, honey, you're not going to believe this. We had twins. The cow had twins. There's, it's an amazing thing. There's one for the Lord and one for us. About two hours later, he comes back in and he's kind of crying. And he says, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. His wife says, what happened? Well, the Lord's cow died. The Lord's calf died. No, no, no. We've got here, we've got two that are going to be, that, that the Lord is using here. They are the Lord's, one for them and one for the nation of Israel. Verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement uh, with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Look down there at verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. So you see this picture that's being generated here. He's, he's teaching them that your sin must be removed from you. It must be sent away. It must be taken away. Look there. Putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him where? Away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now, brethren, that fit man there, if I had time, we could delve deep down into that. That is a picture of Christ. He is the one who is holy. He's the only one who's fit to take the sins and send them away from men. But this is literally what they would be thinking in their minds to send away, the Bible says, Paul or Luke wrote here, Paul preaching, to put apart our sin. Sin is what, brethren? Sin is really a missing of the mark, if you will. It literally means to fall short. <laughs> now, I know what first came to my mind when I, was, when I was putting this together. We can quote it, can't we? Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. This is what sin means. In fact, Martin Luther, he, he, uh, he, he spoke and he said it really means it is a departure from the thrice holy God of sacred scripture. A departure in any area in any area of sin in your life. The phrase, the forgiveness of sins, is used nine times in the New Testament. And it is indeed, brother, a glorious sonnet in the ears of those who believe and are saved. As I said, brethren, there is no greater news. We love the news of our children being born. That's great news. We, love, we, we get great news all the time, brethren, but listen, there's nothing greater when you look in Holy Scripture and God draws you and you, he opens your eyes to see that 
You are like this woman is that we're going to see. And then to hear the words that she hears. Oh yes, brother, turn with me if you would to Luke. He, he loved these kind of glorious narratives concerning this, this theology, this deep theology that we're in the midst of. And it gets even deeper. Justification is just such a deep theological thing. And, uh, but we want to, you know, we want to make it more than just theology. We want to make it a reality. Amen. God's working in my heart and in your heart and in your mind and in my mind. I'm still finding pages from last week that are folded up in my Bible. All that wind. It's just, I keep flipping. Oh, there's another one. There's another one. Look at Luke chapter 7, if you would there. And uh, again, this is a glorious thing. When the Spirit of God does this to one who finally comes to the realization, look at Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 37 there, if you would, brother. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a, we can all say it, a sinner. See verse number 37. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And we go on through the text. In verse 38, she kisses his feet. Well, that is a sign of homage. That is a sign of worship. That's exactly what the old, in the Old Testament, that's what you will find. So she's worshiping God. She comes in and brings this, this uh, alabaster box of ointment, and, 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 and she's kissing his feet. And not only that, she's using her hair. And we know what the Bible says about a woman's hair. It is her what? Her glory. And so he's, she's taking her glory at his feet, washing his feet, worshiping him. And look at here, if you would. At verses 44 through 50. Again, just to give you a reader's digest. He asked Simon, hey, there's two debtors. One owed this and one owed a lot more. Who's going to love more? He said, well, the one who is give, forgiven the most. And uh, that's the realization that comes to this woman. So you look there at verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? Uh, I entered into that house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and Wipe them with the hairs of her head. Again, her glory being uh, offered up to the glory of Christ. Look at verse 45. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Again, Psalm 2.12. Go look there. You'll see. That is a sign of homage and worship. Verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And listen. And he said unto her, Thy sins be forgiven. That is a glorious thing to hear from God. It's an amazing thing to see a person who realizes that they're a sinner and there's hope. And again, this is what I always say. There is a pattern throughout Scripture. There's very dark news along with what? The gospel, the good news. Amen. In fact, I had a man, a man last Sunday come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, I'm so thankful the way you ended your sermon because it was dark and deep. And it is. And yet, there's the gospel that is always there, that is always ready, that is always able, that has the power to forgive your sins. It's a stunning thing, brother, and when you consider that, it really, really is. In fact, in Acts chapter, four times in the book of Acts, it is used, forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Well, let's just go there. Look at there, if you would, Acts chapter 26. Again, Luke, as he's led by the Spirit of God, this... This idea of the forgiveness of one's sin being a glorious sonnet in the ears of the believer. Look here, if you would. Look, look at the 
the, if you will, the superlative terms that are used here in this portion of Scripture. There's darkness and light. There's all of these things. And again, this is where a sinner is. They are in darkness. Look here, Revelation, or Acts chapter 26. Look at verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from where? From darkness. There it is again. Uh, from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. You see those superlative terms there. He's turning, they're repenting. They're turning from one thing to another, from darkness to light, from Satan to God. That's the power. Look at what he says. That they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins. There it is, that glorious teaching throughout all of Holy Writ. You go from darkness to light as you preach the gospel, as the gospel is put forth, the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, because of who the Lord Jesus is, he is God in the flesh. He is eternal God, the Son of God, who, and because of what he did, God's one and only efficacious agent for the sin problem, for the forgiveness of our sins is found, brethren, in him alone. So he begins with the great news. Your sins have been forgiven through this man, the man who I've been preaching to you about, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is your promised Messiah. He who God sent is the promise. He kept his promise. He then died and was buried and rose again from the dead. And through him, you have forgiveness of your sins. And not only that, as Paul now wades, if you will, into verse number 39, he wades deep down into theology. Not only are your sins forgiven. Look at verse 39 there of Acts chapter 13. Your sins are forgiven. But listen here, brethren. We are indeed declared justified. And I'm going to spend a little time there. That's why there's no way we could do a whole, our whole text this morning. Because I do want to spend a little bit of time with the, in the theology pool of justification. In fact, there are many preachers of old, really, the, 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 the Baptists, the Bible-believing Christians who have always existed. They've always been their brethren. Always. There's always been a remnant of those who have held to biblical truths. In fact, they died for it. And many of them said along the way, amen, Justification is the very hedge of the gospel. How is one justified? Is one justified by crawling in some water? Is one justified by having water sprinkled on your head? Is one justified by crawling on your knees like many of them did in the past? You know, whipping themselves, all of these things. How is one justified before God? That is the heartbeat of it all. There are some who believe you're justified by grace alone. I'm one of those. There are some who believe you're justified plus a little bit of works, amen? They were justified by a little bit of something we do, amen? There are some who think we're justified by everything they do. How is one justified? I'm glad you asked. We will wade into that pool. Look here at verse number 39. Look at what he says. We have the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 39. And by him, all that believe. <laughs> okay, brother. Seems, it seems like a, a very simple thing. Not all that get baptized, not all that do this, but all that believe are justified from all the things. Listen, brethren, again, he's speaking to the Jewish brethren in the synagogue. From all the things which you could not be justified. There's a positive and a negative. This is how you're justified. This is how you're not justified. 
By the law of who? By the law of Moses. Now again, Paul is led here in verse number 39 by the Spirit of God to wade even deeper into that pool of theology. Not only, as I said, are we forgiven of our sins in Christ, but we're also justified in Him. That word justified, what does it mean? It means to be declared righteous. It is again a forensic act by God. This is something that God does. It's a courtroom setting, if you will. It's something that God declares. He declares, Brother Brian, he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm declaring him justified. Why? Because Brian's a good guy? Because he kept the law? Because he No, because he trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's for all of us here this morning. None of us are justified, as we're going to see, by the law. In fact, isn't it interesting how the devil uses these things? Because what happens is, many people believe they are justified by the law. And what does Paul say? We're going to see the very thing I thought brought me life. What? Brought me death. It killed me. The thing I was trusting and holding on to actually did not bring me life, but it actually brought me death. So we see here again the grace of God as he is bringing forth, or Paul, as he's bringing forth the grace of God. That word justified means to be declared righteous. It is a forensic act of God in which he imputes what that means, brother, and again, another theological word. He imputes. He adds to your account. You had a sin debt you couldn't pay. God simply takes the righteousness of Christ. One believes on Christ, and that righteousness is imputed. It is given to your account by God himself. He declares one righteous, every believing one. By, by, again, imputing the righteousness of Christ and declares that everyone who believes has a righteous standing before him in Christ. He is our advocate. He is the one who speaks on our behalf. He is the one who died. Look at Romans chapter 4. Again, this idea of imputing. It's a, it, it, again, this is a, a theological doctrine that many uh, are not very familiar with. I don't even, you hardly ever hear anybody preaching on the doctrine of imputation. But again, this is an act of God whereby he declares one justice, one justified, one as though he had never, thank brother, as though he's never sinned. It is an amazing thing to, to understand that, especially when we all know ourselves, when we all know how we are. And here's God in his gloriously forensic de declaration. One is declared justified. When they trust in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 4. And again, this brother, and the reason I'm hitting this, we're going to spend a little time again in this, because we're going to go to Romans 8 and spend a little time there. But look here, uh, Romans chapter 4. Paul, again, as he's writing or having this written down, as he's dictating this portion of Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 4. Look at verse number 6. Look where Paul refers to. Even as David... When did David live? He lived where? In the Old Testament. He's living back in the Old Testament of time. In fact, he's, he's referencing here some writing of David. He says there, Psalms 32, if you want to go look. But even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without what? Without works. Again, God's forensic act. He's imputing the righteousness of Christ on the one who trusts in him. It's an amazing thing when you consider that. Look at verse 18. Look who he references. We know who he's talking about. He's talking about who? Abraham. 
Abraham lived in the Old Testament. Abraham lived long before, in fact, the gospel we know was preached to him in Genesis 22. We know that with his son Isaac. Go look at that sometime. We don't have time today, but you go look. There's the gospel being preached to him all along the way. The only son, he, he rode an ass to the place where he was. I mean, it's an amazing thing. There were two men that went with him. There was two with Christ. I mean, it, the, the, the typing there is amazing. But look at verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope? Who's that? Abraham. Abraham's believing God. He's believing, if you will, hope against hope. Look at verse 19. He's not being what? Weak in faith. He's hoping against hope. He's, he's not weak in faith. Finally, look at verse 20. He staggers not at the promises of God. Again, he's, he's an old man. God said, I'm going to bring forth the seed which the Messiah will come. And what did he try to do? Of course, Abraham in his wisdom and Sarah in their wisdom, right, tried to go around God's, God's uh, declaration. And of course, Hagar, and we know what happened, Ishmael, we know what happened there. But here, again, he's promising, Abraham, even in your old age, you don't understand that I am God. I will bring forth the seed. And the Bible says here that he staggered not at the promises of God, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised or because he was better than anyone else. Abraham was saved because he believed God. His salvation is based upon trusting in what God said and what, who God is. He was not saved because of, look at it, it says there, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him, but, all, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So here again we see the working of God in this. This glorious imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who are believers. Brethren, Paul warned them. We're going to look at that as well. But he warned them and said, the law of Moses cannot save you. It cannot. In fact, the law of Moses could never bring justification. This is what he's saying. The law could not justify the sinner. You know what it does? It only condemns him. In fact, God's glorious purpose for the law was never intended to bring anybody to righteousness. Never. In fact, the Bible says something opposite. As I said earlier, Paul in Romans chapter 7, and yes, you know, this is not Paul referring back to his lost days. This is Paul referring to the battle. This is Paul referring to the Spirit of God working in him as he's battling against the flesh. Anybody battling against the flesh? I battle against the flesh. Yes, yes, yes. And there's a war. And that's always a good thing, brother. And when the war stops, you're in trouble. When you just simply go with the flow and you're down the river with it, you are in trouble. It's the war. It's the battle. It is the Spirit of God working in your heart against the world. The world's always clashing against God. It always does. Its philosophies and its understandings always clash against the Spirit of God. This is what Paul is saying. Look at here. He speaks of the law in such a unique way. Look at Romans chapter 7 since we're right there. And then we'll just click ahead for a moment. I haven't left the text yet. We're just simply laying the groundwork out. Look at here. The purpose of the law was never meant to, set, to justify, to save, 
ever. In fact, people will say, well, I think I've kept most of the Ten Commandments. No, you haven't. You haven't even come close. In fact, the Ten Commandments are designed to show you that. They're designed to show you how crooked you really are. Nowhere you could not keep the straight edge of the law. It's not possible. And this is the glorious thing of the gospel. This is the grace of God. Knowing, I was, we were, Sethi and some of our kids, we have, well, we have tub time. So they're taking baths, you know, that kind of thing. We have tub time, just me and me and Seth, not never with the girls, but Seth, we have tub time, we have toilet time, we have Kubota time now. And uh, we sit out on the Kubota tractor lawnmower, we talk about things. And last night he asked me, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And boy, there's, that's a hard one. But there is one that came to my mind immediately. John chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. You remember what happened there? We're not going to go there, but think of this for a moment. Jesus knew, before this was written, John chapter 13, Jesus knew, number one, that he was leaving. Number two, that he would be what? He'd be betrayed by a close friend. And number three, that Peter was about to deny even knowing him. And it's a glorious thing. He knows all of this, and you know what he said? He loved them to what? The end. That's the love of God. That's what God does. He loves you anyway. Because you cannot keep the law, and he knows it. In fact, look at what Paul says. Look what the law did to him. And brother, this is what the law does to us. Precisely. Not to make us righteous, not to make us good, but brother, and really to show us how crooked we are. Really are. Look at verse number 9, or Romans chapter 7. I'm so used to saying Romans chapter 7. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I what? I died. I realized that I could not have spiritual life. I died spiritually because the commandment kills me. It doesn't save me or make me good, it does the opposite. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Verse 11, for sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Look at verse 12. Wherefore the law is holy. Yes, it is. Brethren, God's law is holy. Amen. It is perfect and good and right. Yep. Because he is holy and perfect and good and right. Hence the problem. You and I have fallen short. That's it. I was like to say, <clears throat> now listen, brother, and you, and you think you've kept every law, which you have not. If you break one law, you break one. Mm -hmm. It's over. What did James say? Right? You broke one, you've broken them all. What's the problem? See, this isn't like when we're sitting in home school, uh, when you're sitting in your home school class, and mom says, hey, if you do this map, I'll give you extra credit for doing the map. In the spiritual realm, in sin, when God deals with sin, there is no extra credit. You realize that. When one breaks the law in one place, just say, for instance, well, I did. I was a blasphemer. I took God's name in vain before I was saved. I blasphemed God. I took his name in vain. That is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And you know what? Even if I never did it again, never again, which I did, but never again, I'm still condemned because I broke it here. You don't get extra credit for never blaspheming God again. This is what people miss about the law. They miss it. As if God designed it for you to be holy. He designed it, yes, 
to live life in a certain way, the best the Holy Spirit allows us to, but never to save us. Never. Look what he says there. He says in verse 13, Was then that which was good made death to me, unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear. What sin? Working death in me by that which is good. That sin, by the commandment, what? Might become what? Exceedingly sinful. Do you see what it's designed to do? You, you, you measure yourself up next to the razor sharp of the law. And what it does, it really, oh, it brings out your sin and it makes it exceedingly sinful because you see, I cannot do it. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not trying to beat a drum, but we live in a society, brother. In fact, look at one more. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Look what Paul says again about the law. He says over here that it slew me. It, it brought me to an understanding of who I am spiritually when I'm measured up. That, that's why, hey, when we're gathered around the Lord's table, I don't look out at uh, Brother Howard over here and measure myself to him. I don't examine myself to him. I examine it to this. Howard's probably going to look pretty good <laughs> if he stands next to me. Brother Brian, some of you other brothers out here. Brother Gina over there. Got his weapon in his pocket. And I love it. <laughs> you look pretty good. This is what it's designed to do. Look there, brother, and if you would, Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise of faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, might be given to them that what? Believe. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were under the law, shut up under, uh, under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our what? Schoolmaster. You know, you, know, you always think of the schoolmaster, you think of them old movies, right? And you got, you got the, old, the, old lady, the old ladies up there in the singles, or, or maybe we'll have the lady did a lot of homeschooling back then too, but here they are up there. There's always this, like, this mean old lady. She looks like the schoolmaster. She's going to run around and... You know, like the, the Catholic schools and whip your knuckles, right? I mean, when you get out of line, you know what I mean? But the schoolmaster, this is what it's designed to do. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be what? Justified by faith. Amen. Amen, brothers. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Everything that you tried to be justified before by the law, you can't. It is the man I'm preaching to you. It is his finished work. It's his glorious, meritorious work that he has accomplished as God brought him forth. And I want you to see again, I haven't departed from our text, but I did a little bit. Uh, this is why there's no way you can, you know, we could spend through verse 52. But I want us to page ahead just, or back now one to Galatians chapter 8. I want you to see this, brethren. The love of God cannot be more demonstrated to us when one is needing justification, then we find here Romans chapter 8. In fact, if you look there, and we don't have, I'm not going to exegete the whole thing. But if you begin there, if you will, in verse number 31, there begins a series of seven questions. You know, you read your text, and there's a little question mark at the end of it. I preached on this about four or five years ago. There's seven questions that Paul asks. And I just want to take a look at them briefly this morning. Because it brings out again as it ends. As it ends, Paul says, who is going to justify me? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the questions. Look there, if you would, at verse number 31. And again, we're just going to kind of walk down through this quickly. Seven questions. We're, we're going to look at them quickly. 
What shall we say then to these things? Question mark. That's question number one. What things? Well, brethren, if you go up in the, in the passage earlier, the things he's just talking about from verse 28, 29, and 30, he's talking about the golden chain of redemption. This is what God has done. You follow that along. Bing, bing, bing. Those he foreknew, he justified. Those he's going to glorify. He even speaks in the past language as if it is a finished and accomplished thing because it is. God has finished the work. Remember the scripture says, he who began a good work will what? He will bring. Thank you, brothers. Yes. The golden chain of redemption is linked together and it is unbreakable. Paul says, therefore, because of these things, question mark. He says that. Again, the golden chain of redemption. What shall we say then to these things? Question number one. Look at question number two. If God be for us, who can be against us? Question mark. Now, brethren, this is a glorious question that Paul asks here in his text. He reminds them, doesn't he? He reminds them that the golden chain cannot be broken. And if God is for us, Paul confirms to us that this verse means much more than the fact that God is graciously disposed to believers. Because he is. He calls all men. There's general calling. There's an effectual calling. There's a calling all the time in the Bible. But we see this. If God is for us, no one. Listen, brother, no one. Nobody. Nothing. If you are saved this morning, there is no one, there is nothing, not even the pit of hell, who will be successful against the child of God. There will be dark fire, but you are secure. That's why we believe, don't we, brother, in the security of the saints. It is God who saves, God who seals. There is no one that will be against us. In fact, look at verse 35 of that same chapter. He, he answers the question. Look at this, the security of the believer. Who... If God be for us, who can be against us? Look there at verse 35. Look what he says there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's question number six. And then he goes on. This is the security. He says, look, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Brothers, listen. Listen to this. Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Question mark. That's the end of his last question. Shall any of these things... Separate us from the love of Christ. No. It's not possible. And then he finishes in verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, brother, we can quote it, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we believe in the security of the saints? Why do we believe in the perseverance of the saints? Because the Bible says it. Yep. When one is saved, one will be brought to salvation. You know the problem, brother. Maybe it's just me. But my weak heart, one who is prone to legalism and unbelief, I receive these words with great difficulty. God is for me. Why? I failed him, but he is for me. He's for you too, if you're a child of God this morning. We are unfaithful, but he is for us. We have not yet brought forth much fruit. Some of us have, but he is indeed for us. And how is God for us? 
look there again. We're just going to quickly go down through this verse. Look at verse 32 of Romans chapter 8. He asks another question. He, he tells us here, how is God for us? Verse 32, he spared not his own son. Listen, brethren, but delivered him up for us all. That is how God is for you. The true believer, the every believing one, this is how God is for you, that he would deliver up his only son for all of us. It's an amazing thing. Look at what he says there. And how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Question mark. Now, brethren, this is again Reader's Digest condensed version of this. We notice that it is God, it is the priesthood of God, it is his work that he is doing here, sending his son. In fact, John chapter 3, we can quote that as well, can't we? John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave, that's an action of God, that's what God did, he gave up his son. This is what he's talking about, the priesthood of the Father. This is how God is for us, in his son, offering him up, delivering him up. This is how God is for us. In fact, Paul's question there in verse 32 it's quite interesting when you look at that. Paul writes that he spared not his own son and delivered him up for us all. How shall he not then with him also freely give us all things? We notice that his question here goes from greater to lesser. Brother, listen, he just told us he gave us his son. He delivered him up. How well shall he not give us all things? I mean, that's greater to lesser, isn't it? The son is the greatest thing he could ever do. And how then would he not give us these piddly little things? And I don't mean that in, a, in an unholy way. I'm just saying, in comparison to spiritual life through Christ, yeah. everything else is small. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Shall he not give us all these things? It's an amazing thing. He who has already given us the best, the greatest, the dearest, the most precious thing he has, and who did so while we were ungodly and sinners, while we were enemies, will he not also give us the trivial little things that we need? If someone thinks enough of you, brethren, think of this for a moment. If someone thinks enough of you to give you a costly, Wendy, brilliant, really nice big diamond on your finger. Well, no, no, we, we've never been into that kind of thing. But the idea here is if God, if he is thinks kindly enough to give you his best. Do you think he will object? Wendy, would you object if I asked for the box back? You would not. Small things, brother. Christ has given us his greatest and his best in the Lord Jesus Christ. You would never think that he would object when we ask him for food, when we ask him for clothing, when we ask him for our daily need. We would never think that he would do it. Of course he will, and of course he has, and of course he does. And this is exactly what Paul is saying there. In fact, let's just get to verse 33, and i got to move on, because we're certain. Look at Romans 8, verse 33 there again. This is kind of where it leads up to. He's saying all of these things. Will God not give us all of these things? Look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Listen. It is God that what? Justifieth. Ultimately, in the end, all of it leads up to the idea that Paul's just saying 
You are justified in the man who I have been preaching to. You have been declared righteous before God himself because he has imputed his righteousness to you. It is indeed a question that is asked with a rhetorical question that denotes an emphatic denial. The answer given in the verse that God is indeed the justifier. No charges can be brought against the Christian brethren because God has already pronounced you not guilty. That is justification. I like how one pastor put it. Bring out the challenge in heaven itself. Trumpet it through the caravans of hell. Let the whole universe hear it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I say nay, none can. What an amazing thing. For it is God who justifieth, and his justification blocks every charge that is brought against every one who trusts in Christ. What a glorious truth, brother. The depth of justification, the very arm of salvation, if you will. How one is justified depends or really declares where you go when you die. Am I justified in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Or am I justified in him and a little bit of work for myself? Or am I justified because I'm so good and I've done all this work? What an amazing devilish thing the devil does. No, brother, it is in Christ alone, by his grace alone. I say it a thousand times. The older I get, the more I understand the grace that God gives. I can't do it. That they, does that give us license to sin? No, when we sin, it hurts. We hurt because we hurt him. It does not give one license to sin, but we have to realize that keeping the law, trying to be good enough, is not good enough. Because, yeah. brethren, let me say this, and I'll move on quickly. You have no idea. You know, there's the sin of transgression, things we know we did, <laughs> and we know we shouldn't have done it. There's the sin of commission, and even some of them you can see and you can understand that. But you know one you know nothing about? The sin of omission. And the sin of omission is as powerful as the sin of transgressing. You don't know what you should have did and you didn't do it, and it was sin in God's eyes. That's his grace covering. That is him who justifies and declares that my blood, the blood of my son, whom I imputed to you, has covered you from, can we use the liberals' terminology? From cradle to grave, baby. From cradle to grave. That is a glorious truth. That is a most glorious truth we are hearing this morning. Let, let, let's just finish up. Look what he says there as we finish there back in Acts chapter 13, verses 40 and 41. We'll read that together. Look what he does. Verse 40, very interesting. He preaches these things. Your sins are forgiven. You're justified. If you believe on him, which you could never be justified by the law of Moses. What's that first word in verse 40? Beware. He preaches the good news and he tells them, beware. He warns them. So what he's doing is he's telling these brethren that he's been preaching to that what I've just preached to you demands what? A decision. One must be made. This is what he's saying. Beware. I'm warning you. What I've just preached is truth, and I'm, I'm calling forth for a decision right here, right now. Therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken in the prophets. Well, where in the prophets? Habakkuk, we, we don't have time to go there. One five, Malachi, I'll give you that one. He's, he, again, he's thinking, he's warning them with the word of God. He's thinking about, uh, as you look at Habakkuk and what was happening, God's judgment was coming. <laughs> 
Hey, it's coming. What was he doing with Malachi? Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4. He's warning. There's a warning coming. Christ is coming again. Amen? He came. He, what, what did Malachi do? The last Old Testament prophet speaks of his first coming in chapter 3 and his second coming in chapter 4. And he warns of judgment. Paul is doing the same thing. I'm warning you that what I just preached to you is true. And if you don't believe it, if you don't repent, if you don't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what will happen. Before, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken in the prophets, behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. He's again calling, brother, for those to make a decision. The offer of forgiveness of sins and justification calls for a decision to accept or reject it. Now, some of these might have heard it. You might have be like me. As God was drawing me, I would hear the word of God and no response. Can I get an amen? Somebody would preach the word, no response from Mike. Some would preach the word, no response from Mike. And suddenly, suddenly, somebody preached the word. And you know what? There was a burning, a changing in my heart like you can't believe. But I heard it 50 times. And rejected it. And in God's good timing, in his glorious timing, he opened my heart to see and to hear and to understand. This is what Paul is saying. He's preaching there the gospel. He's saying, this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one. And he's warning them just like he always did. In Acts chapter 20, verses 31 and 32, he warned the elders there over and over again for three years. He watched diligently. He warned them over and over again. He was warning them. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 28, he says, I'm warning every man. I'm preaching Christ, and I'm warning every man that this is true. You must believe and trust in that. And as we close, again, I said it earlier, that this man came up to me after the service last week, and he said, I'm glad you ended the way that you did. Because it was dark. It was dark to begin with. And then, brethren, you know what happens? The light of the gospel gets presented. It gets presented in the darkness. The light of the gospel, which comes into the darkened heart and mind of lost people, that they might see the glorious gospel of Christ. This really, if you look in scripture as I close, this is Paul's pattern. Go look. It was never the Joel Osteen stuff where he smiles with his teeth, white teeth lying to you like a devil God has a great plan for you you're, you're alright, I'm alright, no no way brother there's a man that can't even tell Larry King who's a Jewish man on live TV that Jesus is the only way which is what he did the common Christian knows that Paul knows that Luke knows that we know that. That screaming meaning last week in Dean's face. We're not all Christians! Right? We're not. I'm glad you realized that. But we pray you become one. Amen? He's the only way. This man, whom Paul preached, whom Peter preached, whom Luke is recording for us about, he is the one who died was buried and rose again from the dead. That men might be, have their sins forgiven and that men might be justified 
before him in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice with you this morning in the gospel. We rejoice with you in the word of God. And uh, boy, Paul, he took his way down. Luke records him taking his way down deep into theology this morning, into those stubborn facts. But that theology and those stubborn facts are brought to life through the Word of God. For the Word of God is sharper, is alive, and sharper than a double-edged sword. And the preaching of that as the Spirit of God goes forth with that Word that is alive, He makes it alive in the hearts of the lost. He takes it to that place, as I say all the time, that only he can take it. He's the only one that knows our own hearts. He's the only one that knows our minds. That's an intricate place to go. That's why it is such a powerful thing when a man or a woman or a child hears a sermon. And God, by the Holy Spirit of God, sends that word deep down into that place. Father, we are so grateful, all of us here this morning who are saved, that you did that very thing to us. We heard, we may have listened, we may have listened, we may have listened, we may have rejected and rejected and rejected, and there came that, that time in real time, what I call earthly time. You knew from the, from the foundation of the world, but we lived it for real. There was the earthly time when we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for that this morning. No pride, no arrogance, no bragging about that. But Father, again, we pray for those who are lost, those who are around us. We pray to God that they would be saved, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond to the gospel of Christ. For he is the man, the only man, the only one, God's one and only. He is the instrument of efficaciousness, a big word. He is the one alone who can take away that dark blot of sin from our lives. Father, now we love you as we gather around the Lord's table. We will remember that. We're reminded of that again, of these great truths that continue to bubble up, that continue to show up page after page in the Bible and Holy Scripture. We ask and pray these things now in Jesus' name. All God's people said.